Hi, I'm Phil Trethaway. Hi, I'm Serena Joel. You're listening to the Creativity Speaks podcast, where Serena and I explore the stories of Sacramento's creative community. Serena has produced and marketed some of your favorite Sacramento events. And Phil is the co-founder of Creativity Plus and creative director of Position Interactive, a digital design agency. Each season of Creativity Speaks focuses on a different theme. This quarter, we are focusing on the theme of shift. Thanks for listening. We hope these discussions are enlightening, inspiring, and spark a few conversations in your home and your workplace. If you're interested in being a sponsor of this podcast, email us at creativityplus, that's P-L-U-S, Sacramento, at gmail.com. Welcome back to Creativity Speaks. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to Creativity Plus on one of your favorite podcast platforms and tell your friends to do the same. So today, Phil and I are joined by the amazing Paul Willis. Paul's list of accomplishments is so impressive that I can't even list them all here right now, but they all revolve around hip-hop, education, social justice, and building community. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. Thanks. So during our prep for this episode, Phil and I were so impressed by your ability to use hip-hop to educate. So I'd love to challenge you right now to use a rhyme to summarize what listeners can expect to hear in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you a couple because I think it'll help provide some of that perspective on my life and some of the things that I'm doing. Growing up as a kid, I had to pick my spots. Middle of three gangs, I had to pick a block. Watching mom on drugs, wishing this would stop. Sleeping on trains, hoping I don't miss my stop. There's a thin line between love and hate. Cause you either at the table or on a dinner plate. No fathers, they wanted my sisters to pick a race. It was all fun and games until the fist of face. No way to save six years old bus stop on the corner. Never had dreams of moving to California. Pointing out the cars, wishing that was mine. Big vert in my ear helping me keep the time. Guru and Mr. Lift taught me about the struggle. My sister's kind, Sharifa, is who I looked up to. Patrick's rep in the hood kept me out of trouble. But things changed when I got off the train at Ruggles, 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 Ruggles. At 12, I was chubby and black and I was cute. I was learning how to rap and learning how to hoop. My grandma wanted me to wear ties to school and I had stacks of library books that were overdue. I wasn't cool when you didn't have a block to rep. I didn't know the code, had to watch the trends. I just wanted to fit in, so I watched my friends. Couldn't figure where the hood stopped and I began. John stopped switching juices for the Heineken. I stopped wanting to lie and lie again. Bodies dropped in my friends I couldn't see anymore till they started slapping stickers on backboards. I knew my way out because my friends had instilled in me and I had this love like you wouldn't believe. The hood has never been a place I wanted to leave where we don't get out alive and make it out free. Free, 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 free. Yeah. I love it. That Thank was you. sweet. Is that on one of your albums? Yeah, that, that was from Wonderland. The uh, song called Ruggles. Yeah. And that gives people just a good understanding of what it was like for me kind of growing up in my neighborhood and part of what makes me who I am these days. Did you write that here in Sacramento or back? Is it an older rhyme from, from East Coast days? Uh, I actually wrote it here. You know, I, I worked on the album over the past three years, and uh, a lot of it's just like kind of reflecting back and, and taking this nostalgic look on my neighborhood. I think the thing that I noticed while I was writing 
was really how much my neighborhood has grown and changed over time, uh, how it's become gentrified. So some of the same people, the same businesses, like the look and physical feel of the neighborhood, you know, it's just not the same anymore. And I think Sacramento's kind of been going through that sort of change in a lot of similar ways. You know, more recently, we see our city kind of growing and changing and people are struggling with how to adapt and how to grow in a way that's, you know, respectful and and, and ethical and, and incorporates uh, the perspectives and views of everybody. So the music is For a little sure. bit about that in, in my life and the way that I saw it. But hopefully it's a it's a way for people to understand kind of what's happening with them right now. That's awesome. Love it. Love it. And is that is that the overall tone of the whole album for Wonderland coming up? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very musical. It's very jazzy um, in places, you know, really just want to take people on this journey to understand hip hop. And I think what makes my music different than a lot of others is that it it invites people in to the stories. You know, I, I try not to use kind of words of wordplay that goes over people's heads. I want your casual, you know, music lover to hear it and to understand it the first time that they hear it. There might be a couple places where they might have some questions like, who is that person? Tell me a little bit more about that story. But generally speaking, yeah, that's that's the tone and, and the feel and the vibe of the album. When you definitely use hip hop as a way to talk about like diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then even through your contract work, that's also kind of where your passion lies. So how do you use hip hop to kind of educate on those three topics? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that people should first really understand about hip hop culture in order to understand diversity, equity, and inclusion work. You know, hip hop, we value peace, love, unity, and having fun. And we have a number of different elements to do that. You know, emceeing, uh, which is just rapping. You have the, the DJ or the producer, the person who's making the music. You have the visual element, uh, which is like graffiti writing, but generally speaking, like artwork and, you know, murals and that kind of thing. You have break dancers. And, and, and all the different forms of hip hop dance that exists now. And then you have this piece around knowledge, right? And it's, it starts with knowledge of self. And then it's, you know, knowledge of your community, kind of being aware of the issues and the things that are going on around you. So when you look at all of those things, that's not reflected in social media and radio and YouTube and all those places. So I just wanted to start with no, that kind of grounding no. and, and understanding first. Yeah. Phil, you were saying something? I was agreeing with you there that, you know, if, if you just take, you know, Billboard Top 10 Hip Hop, is you know, you don't always read that in. Right, right. So for me, kind of starting with that place as the foundation, growing up, my favorite artists were the artists who told not only their personal stories, but they shared the stories of their communities in a way that was really powerful and how they represented for their communities. But it really gave you some insight into what the real issues uh, that were going on with these artists who were coming from marginalized and for many of them, just low income communities where they didn't have much. So you would hear stories about single parents raising a whole bunch of kids in the house or grandparents stepping in because there might be an absent parent or a parent who is incarcerated you hear stories about drug use and addiction and how that impacts the family and the community as a whole. You, you hear a lot of these different stories when you come up from that environment, right? Your role models 
start to shift and change as you get older, right? Like the things that we used to value in the, you know, 90s and early 2000s are, you know, we're speaking almost a different language these days. But there are some things that are still common, right? In hip hop, it's always been a method to bring people together from the summer park jams in New York City to, you know, one of the first hip hop parties was a fundraiser for a girl who didn't have school clothes, you know? So it was a quarter for the girls and 50 cents for the boys. And they all came together to support this effort of, hey, you know, this person needs clothes for school. We're going to come out to this hip hop party. Cool Herc is going to DJ and, and we're going we're gonna to support each other. And it's that kind of idea that when you take that into nonprofit spaces, when you take that into business settings, government settings and policy, it's, you know, how do we support the people who are um, at the margins? How do we center that experience? How do we help those people instead of speaking for them as a representative? How do we empower those people to speak for themselves in their kind of language and understanding and not judge them for not being able to, you know, speak with the language of an academic or somebody maybe with a master's degree or PhD that might be a little bit more removed from from the people in, in those settings, right? So it's it's my work because I see the value in in both of those settings. And I've I've come from one and into the other, and I've realized that there's not a lot of people who, who look like me, who think like me, and and move in the sense of of authenticity. So I want to encourage people to show up as their full selves. In, in this diversity, equity, and inclusion work. But in order to do that, you know, you have to kind of shape some of the conditions. And I think hip hop is a way of understanding how to create conditions. It's a little bit easier to do that with art than to do that with like your business, you know, because, you yeah. know, people feel like incredibly and personally attached to their work and their sense of safety and security. And, and I, I get that and I understand all that. But I think it's important that we begin that practice and we can start with the arts where it might feel a little bit more inviting and then use those same lessons to really shape the rest of our uh, community. Yeah, let's let's dig into that a little, a little more. And so as our audience is this broad network of creatives out there, they maybe different kinds of creatives, but I really want to talk to you and learn a little more about like how as a creative, and what do you bring as a creative that's different to your diversity, equity, inclusion work, right? You can go hire somebody, consulting firm. Why would, not, not, not why would I hire Paul Willis, but like, what is it that's different about being a creative and doing this work versus an academic per se or someone else? Yeah. For me, honestly, I think it's my perspective and outlook on the world and the way that I approach this work. And what I tell, you know, clients or potential clients is when you want to understand the scope of creating equity. You have to understand that there are things that a single trainer or a single person is going to miss. And it's because of their background and their upbringing. Because I'm a cisgendered uh, black man who comes from this like uh, Jamaican family on the East Coast, I bring a certain kind of perspective to the work, right? I am not a, a multi-ethnic trans person who grew up in you know, Southern California or even a place like a Texas, because that lens is completely different. The issues that are important to them, the way that they recognize microaggressions or macroaggressions in different settings, 
you know, they're going to be able to speak to a lot of those issues in a way that I cannot. So right. while I'm doing my own learning, I can share some of my perspective of, you know, how do you become a good listener? How do you get really curious about people and, and who they really are? And how do we find ways to build bridges and build connections? I can recommend people uh, strategies on how to do that. I've seen a lot of things work in a lot of different spaces. So that's that's what I'm bringing to the work, whereas somebody else might bring in something that's different and informative in a, in a whole other set of ways. You know, having the opportunity to practice a lot of those skills, working with young people from diverse backgrounds and from marginalized communities has given me a lot of opportunity to do that work. But a lot of those same lessons for bringing a group of young people together or managing a team of diverse, you know, 18 to 24 year olds, you know, a lot of those lessons, I think, also translate into business and management settings in other places. When you're doing your, your work and taking people through like workshops or, or whatever it may be, right? I'm sure you have, you have tools to do this work, right? Are any of yours distinctly creative and different than others? And so like, are you ever making people, all right, let's think differently and do this rather than brainstorming five reasons how you offended someone last week, but like write a poem about it or, you know, do it through art or and, and, do you bring that creativity into the, the space as well? Yeah, I, I think that there's a couple of different things. I think that there's uh, creativity that's involved in the way that I present new information. So I try to make it very visual. Um, I try to use images that help people understand really complex ideas, make them simple. You know, if there's an opportunity to use a short video or something like that or use music to share a different perspective, then, yeah, I incorporate all of those things. But I think ultimately what it comes down to is having people understand what their strengths are as leaders, because they can't mimic the same strategies that I'm using as a, as a teacher, right? But I want them to show up in the way that's really kind of true and authentic to them and be open to the idea that somebody can see or view a particular issue or problem differently. Because when, you know, when you're a manager and an employee brings this issue to you and they're like, hey, like, I think that there might be some like racial insensitivity, you know, so-and-so said this and it's really affecting people and how they are, are trusting that person. You know, it's, it's on the manager instead of to come down like really heavy handed to dig into that a little bit more to problem solve and figure out, you know, how do I kind of unify this team? Does it mean educating this individual, having a one-on-one -on -one conversation? Is there kind of that group accountability that also needs to happen? And what are the ways that I do that? I could just talk at people to do that. But if there's a better process for engaging people, and sometimes the arts is a really great way to show people some of that stuff in, in a way that shapes their consciousness. Well, I think that we can all agree that like racial inequality has been something that has existed for a long time. And obviously, in 2020, I think it became kind of at the forefront. It became a topic. We started hearing microaggressions, diversity, equity, inclusion, like all these words were suddenly mainstream. But I think you've been working on this for decades before, right? What for you, like personally and professionally, how has 2020 changed you? Yeah, 2020 changed me in a lot of different ways. I'm an introverted person, even though I love to be on stage, like commanding a crowd and then being out and about at events. 
I like really kind of close to the middle of, of that balance of between introvert and extrovert, but I'm really an introvert. So I think mm. what I've realized in this time is I really want to take on projects and work that I really believe in. You know, I think the, the thing that keeps me motivated is knowing that I'm really making a difference in the work that I'm doing. So when I think about a group like Metro Edge, you know, and providing leadership training to their leadership team right before they kick off their diversity, inclusion and belonging campaign, I think that's like really powerful stuff. And to see just the language that they use, the things that they thought about and having their entire team kind of move on the same accord. That was just a powerful moment for me. Getting involved with the SACB, we started a community to newsroom pipeline where we could elevate, you know, marginalized voices and have them tell their own stories in the beat. That was such a powerful kind of moment where we could show up and, and, and do this work in a really amazing way. And then, you know, after the pandemic, you know, started and then there were the George Floyd protests and having an opportunity to do consulting work with the SACB. And I was working with journalists, you know, every day, every other day, you know, talking about stories, talking about who they're covering, who they're going to interview, making sure that they are thinking about diversity in really intentional ways, helping them think about equity in really intentional ways. That is the kind of thing that really kind of sparked me in 2020. You know, I was kind of in education spaces, nonprofit spaces. I had participated in a few kind of leadership programs and what I discovered about myself was, you know, I really wanted the opportunity to kind of work for myself, to, to be my own boss, to run my own thing. And I wasn't sure at first if it was going to be like a for-profit business or a nonprofit or, or some sort of program that was grant funded. But for me, I think finding my, myself through consulting and mm -hmm. learning who I am just as, as a boss, right? As a CEO, as a, you know, that kind of thing. That was really, I think, one of the, the biggest shifts for me is nobody's going to come to me and like place the work in front of me and say, here you go, right? Okay. I, I have to learn how to create my own opportunities. So then I do that in creative ways. I share, um, you know, things through social media. I talk about issues. You know, I, I, I connect with people. I use relationships to put myself out there. And, you know, that's been another really cool thing to learn is how to do that a little bit more intentionally around this work. And then that's, that's leading to some really cool stuff. So opportunities like this, you know what I mean? To be able to share a little bit more, but that's a little bit about how 2020 really impacted me. Let's dig in that last part a little more. I know we, we've talked about how you, know, you used to, when you grew up, you were kind of chasing opportunities when an opportunity came around. And now you're in this phase of life where you're starting to create opportunities and create the opportunities. So you mentioned this just previously. What advice do you have for listeners about how can they stop chasing and start creating? Mm. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's, that's such a really great observation. I think for me growing up in a family where my grandmother raised us and, you know, this is how we learned humility. You know, it was just, take what you can get, right? Don't, don't ask too much or don't expect too much from others. You know, whatever is given to you, be, just, be really grateful for those things. And I think that growing up and, and becoming an adult um, in the workplace, 
a lot of the same thing, right? You you don't learn how to negotiate in college or other spaces. Uh, so you're not asking for the things that you want or the things that you feel like you deserve. So if you don't come from a, a family that has experience in that, then you know you may not know how to do that in, in a natural sense. So for me, I think kind of breaking that cycle, it wasn't just a solo effort. I had done some reflection. I knew that I wanted to kind of embark and, and, and jump into working for myself, but I wasn't sure how to do that. And it wasn't until kind of joining the Catalyst program through the Sacramento Asian Chamber of Commerce and the Nehemiah Emerging Leaders program that I got to be around other professionals in the community, people who are doctors, lawyers, business leaders, you know, educators, policymakers, all, all these types of people. And they were affirming for me as somebody who like comes from the community with this perspective that this is absolutely the work that you should be doing. Go ahead and jump in. Uh, know that people will support you because everything that you're talking about, it, it makes sense to people. And that's where you can really be helpful is is being that cultural translator in a sense. So I, I think that's what it was for me was, you know, that internal reflection and just learning about who I am and what I wanted for myself and kind of making those ideas in a reality, really working towards those things. But a lot of the confidence for jumping in came from some of my peers in, in different industries who really affirmed me and let me know that, hey, this is something that you can really do. So put the plan together, dedicate some real time to creating that action plan, and then take the leap because you're ready. Right. And you just mentioned that you did some other leadership programs. And both Phil and I, we both did Leadership Sacramento through the Metro Chamber and so for you, through the leadership programs that you did, how did your thinking shift after those experiences? And what were some of those key triggers? You know, I think the biggest thing for me, especially when I was in the Catalyst program, uh, it was being led by Jim Tabucci for a number of years. And like my class was his final year with the program. But the whole first class, I kind of sat in a room and I just listened. And I wasn't even sure. I was like, am I even qualified to be here? Like I I hear I, I got accepted, obviously, but I'm sitting in this room and I'm looking around. And I felt really intimidated. And Jim pulled me aside after class and he was just like, You can't show up like this. Like you can't show up and not say anything. You know, your perspective and what you're bringing to the table is different from everybody else in the room. And that's why you're here. It's because you're adding value to these conversations and you need to know that. So hearing that from the instructor was huge. And yeah, you know, yeah the next class I, I came in, I was a little bit more engaged and ready to go. But, you know, I think first recognizing that my experiences as a, you know, kind of young professional, that th those were validated in that moment. You know, sometimes people will look at teachers or people who work in education, after school programs, youth development or other things in education. And then they'll think, oh, well, that's of lesser value. Like that's not as important as, you know, all of these other sectors that, you know, impact our community. And what what I learned in that moment, kind of talking with Jim and hearing a little bit more from my classes, the way that we think about the work in education spaces 
particularly if we're talking about social justice in education or equity in education. Uh, a lot of the books that we're reading, the people that we're listening to and, and hearing from in lectures, the professional development that's happening is not happening in business settings. You know, Victor Rios will show up and speak at Sac State, but the business community has no idea who that person is or why, you know, his, his research could really be helpful for them in, in an equity sense. You know, so for me, I think it was understanding through those kinds of opportunities that my perspective is, is valuable and needs to be brought to the table. When I joined Nehemiah, you know, I was further affirmed, but at that point, I think I was ready for that career shift. But I hadn't really known anybody that came from my background. There's no safety net for me, right? There's no like family that's going to like loan me money or like anything like that. So for me, if I'm making this career shift, I need to understand like, how do I set myself up to do that well? And I think at Nehemiah, that's really where I, I learned a little bit more about how to do that. My class kind of knew what I wanted to do. They believed in me and thought I could do it. And they told me to just jump in and I did, you know, I was working at the American Leadership Forum for three months and I realized, you know, this is not the, the setting for me. They're an amazing organization. They do great leadership stuff, but working for somebody else was not like my calling. <laughs> uh, and, and that was not the path that I wanted to take. You know, I'm willing to work with people. I'm willing to be a partner. And in, in a in a thought leader in the space, uh, I think that there are ideas that are unique to my experience and unique coming from a hip hop background. That's it, you know, with social justice and equity, with with that frame, I think that there are a lot of things that are just different for people in our business and policy community, in our education community, public health sector. I think that there are some things that they can learn from from this approach, and I think that there are things I can definitely learn hearing from them about what's happening in, in those spaces. So um, I want to show up as a partner. And I think that that was the thing that I learned from Nehemiah is that me, myself as the individual can do that with a company or organization or nonprofit, you know, which is just completely different than where I was, you know, three, four or five years ago mentally. And I want to echo something you said, totally feel you when you, you talked about being in Catalyst and being that quiet guy, the listen. I mean, this is my personality as well. Like I'm a listener first, right? And I, after a while, I won't shut the hell up. But you're a listener at the, in the beginning, just reading the room. And I think I, I never correlate to you said that, but no, no one came up to me and told me to start talking. But I made a goal for myself around that same time I was participating in Leadership Sacramento where I was... You know, I was in my 30s, I think, at the time, and early 30s probably. And it was, you noticed in meetings and, and settings where like, they got to the point I thought about 15 minutes later. And so I made a goal. All right, speak up. Your goal for this year is to speak up earlier. It's, you know, what's the worst that happens, right? What's the worst that happens is that someone else, you know, they, they think you're wrong, but usually they'll just pass, you, pass on by and move on. But that, that speaking up and, and having your voice heard is, just such an important thing. And, and I think you're right with being around the right people too, you know, being around those people that empower you. People often ask like, Oh, what does NELP do? What does Catalyst do? What does Leadership Sack do? It's like, ah, man, it's hard to explain, but you get around cool people who are motivated and smart. It raises your game. It does. Iron sharpens iron. 
you know, that's a, that's a key thing. And, um, you know, uh, outside of kind of affirming, I think just that practice of we're in this space and we're reflecting together because oftentimes, you know, you'll go to your job, you might have some professional development stuff, but there's not built in time for reflection. Right. I think that was one of the things that made city year so unique moving out here to help start up city year was, you know, every Friday, every other Friday when we were doing our professional development work, we had built in time to reflect on the clock, right? So we could think back to the past week, to the past couple weeks about how we're developing our own leadership skills. And not only that, but what, you know, how do we address some of those challenges and how do we really kind of slay those challenges? How do we overcome those things so that uh, we can kind of progress and, and develop even more skills as a leader. But that built-in time for reflection, I think while people were going through it, sometimes, you know, we, we take it for granted. But when I left City Year and I was kind of part of other organizations, I realized, oh, okay, nobody else has that dedicated time. They might have professional development time where they're learning new skills or they might have kind of collaborative working time with other groups or peers or departments. But that reflection time, I think, was key for the learning and growth to actually stick. For the listeners who don't know, and I, I hadn't heard of City Year until like five years ago, give us a quick two minutes. Like, what is City Year? You know, you hear about Peace Corps, you hear about AmeriCorps. What is City Year? City Year is a national and international AmeriCorps program that places teams of AmeriCorps volunteers in the schools to be tutors and mentors for students. So their goal is around ending the high school dropout crisis. And they look at data really intentionally in order to be able to do that. So they focus on these three things. It's attendance, uh, student behavior, and then their course performance in English and math. And what they realize is that those are the levers for not only uh, students to perform well, but for schools to turn around. And there was a large kind of national study uh, that was done by John Hopkins University that, you know, schools with city year, whether they were inner city or rural schools, you know, schools that had city year performed two to three times better on all of those indicators, the attendance, behavior, and course performance. They, they performed two to three times better than schools without city year. So it was a really kind of remarkable opportunity for me to not only go through that experience as an AmeriCorps member, but then to work on staff because it was an issue where I learned so much about myself and my community. But when I moved out here, I could really see how it impacted and and, uh, changed school culture and communities also. Yeah, it's just a cool way of thinking differently about a problem. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you think yeah. it's not necessarily about a creative podcast, we talk about it, but I wanted you to talk about it for a minute because it's approaching something differently, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, sometimes we look at the issues in education and we think a lot of money <laughs> is going to solve them. And education actually has like a people problem where it's like not diverse enough and then you don't have the number of adults on campus to fully support students in, in the best ways. You know, a single teacher to a classroom of 30 to 35 students is a lot. There's just a yeah. lot of like, you know, and, and when then when you look at all the different issues that students deal with from like 
homelessness to hunger to uh, mental health issues to special need there's so many different things that that are challenges for our students that a single person can easily get overwhelmed and they need help and support so it was cool to see city year be a people solution and you know hopefully there's opportunities for just more people to get involved whether it's through city year or through other programs that support our students I think if there are ways to kind of build strong schools and strong communities and have them come together, that'd be amazing. Well, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you went from like this education background to this consultant work and then kind of on the side, you've got your hip hop creativity and your music, all that love. And it's kind of how it all comes together. Those are your buckets. So Mm -hmm. you're doing a lot. You've accomplished a lot. My question now is, what's next for you? What can we expect in the coming weeks, months, years? Yeah, no, that's a great point. So I, I went from uh, student to teacher with the Nehemiah Emerging Leaders Program. I graduated from the program, and then the next year I became a facilitator. So I'm still doing that. So our next class is actually going to start up in about a week or so. So I'm really excited to kind of get going. I'm working to build up MLK 365 with its executive director, Sam Starks. So a lot of people know MLK 365 because we organize the 30,000 person march that happens every year on MLK Day. But people want to see more of the organization throughout the year. So uh, I'm supporting some monthly programming that we're doing, providing spotlights. We're going to be running a podcast and sharing tools uh, for people to think about their own leadership styles, their the way that they connect with their community and other tools for organizing. So I'll be doing that. And I just released an album. I just released a film that is paired with the album, which is both called Wonderland. And what I'm really excited in terms of those next steps is kicking off the hip hop is fine art campaign. And, you know, in line with the diversity, equity and inclusion work that I do, you know, I want to help people understand this hip hop lens and perspective that I have and how I, you know, use that as a tool to not only bring people together, but to teach around DEI issues. So, you know, when I think about black art, when I think about hip hop and all these other kind of forms of art, music and dance, you know, we have our own standards in the same way that like classical art, music and dance has those standards. And the way that people judge the two is really based on their lens. So that works. I want to show people that you can apply kind of the same ideas and concepts to professional spaces like business or politics or the health, public health sector. So I, I want to be able to share that experience with people. I created a, a four-hour virtual experience where we can kind of go through this whole thing, a, a one-hour workshop. We play the film for people so they get to hear more about that and do a Q&A. We get to do an album listening session and we get to hear those themes and the music and then ask questions about that. And then we open it up for like networking, the ingredient stuff. I'm trying to bring that to museums and colleges and universities and different organizations that can't do like, you know, employee team outings or those types of, you know, community building activities or team building activities anymore. You know, before you used to like AT&T would take, you know, a team of people to the Kings game or something like that, or they might sponsor a nonprofit, you know, with, with seats to a public event. So I'm, I'm excited about that kind of opportunity coming to fruition 
It also starts to, you know, expand my network a little bit to doing work across the country, which is part of my goals for 2021. I realized that, you know, there's a lot of people who kind of understand some of these points and want to dive deeper. And I want to help them do that. And for those people who may be resistant, again, it's introducing the same ideas and concepts about DEI, but doing it through the frame of the arts, I think is really helpful for people in terms of, oh, I can understand this concept. How do I apply it? And then they can look toward other kind of DEI consultants to support them in that work. Well, for your album and for the movie, where Mm -hmm. can our listeners find them? Yeah. So for my album, my music, everything, really, if you want to get in contact with me, that's at Paul Willis is hip hop. P-A-U-L-W-I-L-L-I-S-I-S-H-I-P-H-O-P. That's everything for me. That's like my Facebook page, my Instagram account, my Gmail, my Cash App, my Venmo, my everything. (laughs) (laughs) I I just try to keep it really consistent across the board. What's really amazing is that the, the film and about a third of the album was all funded through the Black Artist Fund which is a group here in Sacramento started by, you know, about eight different black women who worked in a variety of different industries, but all cared deeply about the arts. And they wanted to raise money to support black artists who are doing really great community work. So, you know, they, they funded the film in its entirety and then also helped to fund, you know, about a third of the album. So that's, that's really amazing. So people can see, actually, we just did a film screening and a panel conversation and you can find that on their website. So that's blackartistfund.org slash wonderland is where you can find uh, the film, the panel conversation, and you can really learn a little bit more about how uh, black art during the pandemic has not only been a, a really uh, a tool that can be used for healing for the individual, but a tool that can also help to transform community in, in powerful ways. So um, that's where people can find the film. Or if you just like hit me up directly, like send me an email and, you know, we can work something out. Again, I'm trying to bring, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get a lot of people to see it. So I'm willing to, to share it with a number of different uh, organizations, institutions and the whole nine. So, you know, send me an email or DM me and let's talk so we can bring it to you. Yeah, I'm super stoked about this hip hop is fine art campaign. It sounds amazing. I hope it goes across the nation, but I also hope it goes beyond universities and museums and, you know, let's take it into corporate America. Let's take it into all those other spaces that they can see this example of creativity used to express and educate diversity, equity, inclusion stuff. I I love that mashup and the combination. It's a great vehicle for this conversation to happen. Thank you. Yeah, I I think, sorry, I I think it's been happening like all over the world. It just hasn't been documented. I was talking with uh, Martha Diaz, who is, you know, former producer for Yo! MTV Raps, but she has been doing a lot of work with the Hip Hop Education Center and the Universal Hip Hop Museum. And she's working on documenting the impact of hip hop educators, not just all over the country, but all over the world. So it'll be really cool, I think, to uh, connect in with that uh, community of hip hop educators from all these different places, be able to share through that network. 
Well, I have to ask, and I have been itching to ask this question. What hip hop artists do you think are using the platform appropriately? You know, it's, it's interesting because I think everybody has different goals, right? So if your goal is to get in to hip hop, to make a bunch of money, then there's a way for you to do that, right? There's a, there's commercialization that's happened with hip hop. So if you're using it as an economic tool, then go for it. Be empowered to do so. I'm not mad at that. However, the culture is something that can't be bought or sold. Right. So at the heart of it, it's, you know, when when you think about how hip hop makes people feel, how it empowers people to share their stories and their narratives. Right. Like when an MC is rhyming, you get a look inside their mind and their world. So, you know, that's that's the, the frame I'm going to answer this question with is like, who who does it the best like that? There, there are artists like Common who I'm a huge fan of. I had an opportunity to meet him and I think he does it at, at the highest level. He's somebody who has done a lot of kind of personal growth and reflection through his music. And even one of his most recent albums, you know, where he's talking about fatherhood and conversations with his daughter and, you know, how he was abused when he was a kid and went to therapy. And now he's kind of opening up and helping other men open up about trauma that's happened in their lives. I think that that's that's a really powerful thing, you know, for a hip hop artist to do, because you don't always hear that. When you hear from artists like Talib Kweli, you know, who is now an independent artist, he runs a bookstore, he has a podcast, he still puts out music. And in that music and, and through the books and all that stuff, he's telling these stories about community, um, about these issues. I know that he lights people up on Twitter, but it's, you know, he's, he's really kind of fighting to help create a better world through education, just like his mom, who's an amazing educator and, and college professor too. So, you know, there, there are artists like that, that I'm a, just a huge fan of. Artists like Rhapsody, who is, you know, not just one of the greatest women rappers. She's just one of the greatest rappers today. And she's from North Carolina, but her perspective on just the industry and family and life, it's just so unique what she's bringing to the table. I don't know if we've had a, another women artist be as prolific in that conscious space uh, since like Queen Latifah. She's, you know, she's really amazing. She put out this album called Eve where she, the names of each of the songs on the album is titled after a different woman who she was inspired by. You know, and it just there's a song on the album. It's called The Feeny, um, after, named after Tupac's mom. And it's just about, you know, just the relationships between men and women and, and, and how they treat each other. It's just a really kind of powerful, powerful moment in music. So uh, she's somebody who I really look up to as well. And then, well, here in the Sacramento community, do we have a strong hip hop scene? Yeah, we do. It's... <laughs> It's a beast. <laughs> uh, and if you're a, a dope MC in Sacramento, then, you know, you're really like the cream that's risen to the top. There's a couple different scenes here in the hip hop community. I, I feel like hip hop soon will have subgenres, you know, kind of like how rock and roll, you know, you have like classic rock or new wave or this thing or that thing. Like, yeah, I think hip hop is approaching that. But here there's this like real kind of gangster scene. And there's a lot of like gang cultures and, and people who are like, I want to rap as a way out 
of my environment, you know, to like right. make money to that's legal and will help me be financially stable and, and, and do things that way. So, you know, that's, that's cool. That's not really like my thing, but I recognize that that's a powerful force in, in the music industry right now. But there's also this like backpack underground hip hop scene that's very like lyrical miracle spiritual i want to fit all okay. of these syllables uh, right. into, you know what i mean like you know they they, they, they get very kind of technical in and in, into the weeds so i think that that part of the hip-hop community is another thing that makes sacramento special and then there's this other community of really conscious people who um are making music to empower their community are telling these stories in really incredible ways and they're multifaceted so they're not just doing the music, but they are behind the camera. They're running workshops. They're in your classroom. There's a group of hip hop educators called the Low End Theory Collaborative, and they run a hip hop education conference every year for about 250 middle and high school youth to not only get them on college campuses for the first time, but to expose them into like what can hip hop look like in these spaces because they themselves, you know, are MCs and former B boys because they're now like older so they don't like hit the ground as much but they're djs and producers and you know they're they're still part of that hip-hop community there's this older generation who work on college campuses and they have master's degrees and phds and they run nonprofit organizations and all that kind of cool stuff so that's like a, a group of people who i'm tied to here in sacramento artist collectives like zfg that were mm -hmm. to kind of raise the level of performance mm -hmm. art in the city. Like that kind of stuff to me is really cool because whenever you can be innovative and educational and impactful, then I'm all about it. But there, those are a couple of different types of hip hop scenes that you'll find here in Sacramento. And I, I think it, that's what makes us uh, really special. I, I love love hearing about all those different little you know, niches uh, of the scene and, and the greater scene there. I honestly think we should have two podcasts because it's keep on going for a while, but I do need to wrap it up and bring us back to the topic of shift here. And so I'm going to give you the same question we give to each of our, each of our speakers in this series, which is what is your one piece of advice for someone looking to make a big shift in their life or a big shift in their community? You pick. I'll do a little bit of both. Cause I think for me, it was both. It's this idea that before you can change your outer world, you have to change your inner world in order to create the kind of change that you hope to see out there. You really have to look inside to see if this is something that is very ego driven or if it's truly in service of others, because when you're moving in a space that's like generated by love, you know, it's, it's going to also have its own benefits for you. But I think it's understanding that, you know, no matter how good an opportunity might look for you, if it doesn't actually serve or meet the needs of a community, then you need to kind of take a step back and reevaluate what that opportunity really, really is. If, if you put our young people first, if you put the community first, uh, you know, the praise and the accolades, that kind of stuff will, will come or you know, in many cases for a lot of organizers, it doesn't come like they don't get the media attention, but right. the people are having their needs met. And I think ultimately that's the most important thing is when you're doing work in service of others, you are doing just that. You are serving others and 
not yourself. So well, that's uh, that's the reward, right? You you, yeah, you do get yeah. that personal benefit, and the community feels it, and you don't necessarily need the press all the time, right? Right. That, nice. if, if, yeah, and if that personal benefit starts to outweigh what the community benefits are, you got to reevaluate that. But I think it's it's important for folks to just know that you know when you are when you're doing the work, you also need to constantly be learning and growing. You can't just jump in and think that you have all the answers because no idea is original. And p- there have been people who've been doing this work for a lot longer than we have. You know, so it, it's important to kind of do that reflection and do a lot of that inner growth while you're going through it and recognize that it's, you know, it's not a sprint to the finish. You know, like we, we may not see the full shift in, in the full impact of our work. It's a marathon, you know, yeah. so you're going to be shifting for a long time. And that's the important thing to is just maintain that perspective while you do it. Love it. Awesome. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining Phil and I. For our listeners at home, we our next episode will be with Tara Taylor, the co-founder of Single Mom Strong. And we look forward to more exciting conversations coming up. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Love it. The thank conversation you. today. Thank you. This was amazing. Appreciate you for having me. Thanks for joining us today. This podcast would not be possible without our sponsors, Page Design Group, Position Interactive, Porter Co., and Capital Area Development Authority. This podcast is a program of Creativity Plus and recorded from the safety of our homes in beautiful Sacramento, California. Our programming is made possible by a wonderful team of volunteers. Please be sure to rate and review the show. To learn more about Creativity Plus, please visit convenethecreatives.org. And thank you for listening to the Creativity Speaks podcast.